Being with your changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Rollbar is real-time error monitoring, alerting, and analytics that helps you resolve production errors in minutes. And I talked with Paul Bigger, the founder of CircleCI, a trusted customer of Rollbar, and Paul says they don't deploy a service without installing Rollbar first. It's that crucial to them. We operate at serious scale, and literally the first thing we do when we create a new service is is we install Rollbar in it. Like we, we need to have that visibility, uh, and without that visibility, it would be impossible to run at the scale we do, and certainly with the number of people that we have. Like we're a relatively small team operating a major service, and without the visibility that Rollbar gives us into our exceptions, it just it just wouldn't be possible. All right, if you want to follow in Paul's footsteps and start deploying with confidence today, head to rollbar.com slash changelog. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Good day and welcome to another episode of JS Party. Uh, I am your host this week, Suze Hinton, but I'm also joined by some excellent panelists as usual, including one we haven't heard from for a little while. So a uh, special shout out to Faros, who's back this week. Welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. Uh, and then for the first time, Emma and I are actually going to be on an episode together, so I'm pretty excited about that Yay. too. Yay! It's so nice to meet you. So this week's topic comes from a very sort of personal, um, I guess, angle. And some of us are going to be sharing some personal stories about that today. So um, without further ado, we're going to talk about the topic of burnout today, which I know is near and dear to the development community. And so I'm really glad that we're actually focusing on this um, and talking about it. Um, and so if you're not sure what burnout is, um, I looked it up on Mayo Clinic so that I could give you an official um, definition of it. Uh, Basically, burnout is a special type of work-related stress. Uh, it's a state of physical or emotional exhaustion that also involves a sense of reduced accomplishment and a loss of personal identity. Now, you'll find some of these things jump out in our stories today, um, but just at a high level, the causes of burnout can be everything from a lack of control in your job, um, unclear job expectations, uh, dysfunctional workplace dynamics, um, extremes of activity, you know, and we've, we've seen that a lot with crunch in the industry, especially with video games, um, a lack of social support and also a lack of work-life balance. So at a high level, they're the kinds of things that cause burnout um, and, and it can cause symptoms such as becoming cynical at work, um, having trouble just getting yourself to work, lacking energy, finding it hard to concentrate, um, and, and things like that. And it can leak into your personal life uh, where your sleep habits can change um, and you can also just suffer from other sort of physical um, illnesses as well as a result. So it's a really serious thing 
But thankfully, you know, there are a lot of people who I've seen online, at least on social media, starting to talk about burnout. Um, and a lot of talks have surfaced at conferences as well. So I'm really excited about that. Um, and so I wanted to open up this first segment where I want to ask Emma and for us if they're comfortable sharing stories of burnout. Um, and I know that all of us work in very different roles, I think, in this industry, the three of us. And so I think that we could all share different angles of it. So, Emma, I'm actually going to start with you. Do you have a story that you want to tell about burnout? Yeah. And it actually, it goes back to the beginning of my career. I've suffered from burnout, I feel like, quite often. But I, at the time, I didn't know it was burnout. So after I graduated college, um, I moved down to Texas from New York. And I started my first uh, full-time position. And I had studied Java all throughout college, so I was back-end primarily. And as soon as I moved down, they switched me to front-end. And so I was there trying to juggle a full-time job with learning front-end development from scratch. I didn't have a mentor. Um, the only other devs, um, you know, they were... Hmm. They were already friends, and so I was kind of like the odd one out, which was really hard. And I, I literally went home and cried every day because how are you supposed to teach yourself uh, an entire profession while being expected to deliver on on sprint work, right? So that was, I think, my first time really experiencing burnout, and I did not know that it was burnout. I was extremely cynical uh, and, and quite spiteful, uh, and it just was not a good situation. And now fast forward to today, about four and a half, five years later, and I would say that I'm getting burnout from all of my side projects, not so much my day job. Uh, because, you know, when you enter this industry and you decide you want to get started in side projects, for example, you say yes to pretty much everything that comes your way. And up until a certain point, I think that's really great. And then you realize quickly that you're becoming overwhelmed to the point where you cannot deliver on all these commitments. So like I moved to a foreign country, which was, you know, stressful in and of itself. I didn't speak the language. So I was trying to learn German. Uh, I was balancing that with trying to run an open source project and doing podcasts and teaching courses on Egghead and working a nine to five job. And so um, very quickly, I realized like this is not sustainable. And I and I kind of shut down. Uh, and additionally, I think this was amplified by the fact that at that point, my social media on Twitter was growing, which was exciting. And yet at the same time, it was a hindrance to my mental health because when you're bombarded by notifications 24-7, it's like, a, you know, a, an infinity pool, right? There's It's never ending. And so I spent the majority of my time on social media. And um, I think we all are aware of like the negative implications of the internet uh, as there is no accountability. And so... Um, yeah, this was a really hard time for me. And even last week, um, or two weeks ago, I was actually supposed to be on JS party. Uh, I was, I was supposed to be a panelist and I was so burned out by all of my side projects that I ended up messaging Divya and I said, Hey, can you cover for me? I'm so sorry. And, um, you know, just me being me and not wanting to, to let down on commitments. That was, that was exhausting for me mentally to have to admit defeat. Um, but when you're in that position, you don't really, you don't really have a choice. So so much of that resonates with me. And I think that the the hardest thing is knowing that you have to delegate things or stop things in order to recover. And it's very, very difficult for you to let yourself do that when you're already fe feeling bad about the high standards that you're forcing on yourself, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Uh, and I think that um, being more, um, what's the word, um, 
like when you do something intentionally, being more intentional with the decisions that you make can help combat this to a certain extent. So like instead of just saying yes to everything, say yes to the things that you genuinely take an interest in um, because otherwise you're just going to be overloaded with all of these things that you just, you know, maybe don't really care much about. In the, in the chat, I can see that Cable has just um, given us this pearl of wisdom, which is uh, there's two modes, yes, unless, no, and no, unless, yes. We all start in yes, unless, no, where default yes to every opportunity, unless there's a significant reason to say no. But at some point, we have to change to default to no, unless there's a significant reason to say yes. That has probably been the hardest lesson for me to learn, mm-hmm. uh, especially given that I, I really resonated with what you said, Emma, about changing countries and having to, you know, learn, you know, how much to assimilate, what to assimilate on, starting a new job, um, figuring out being a non-existent person in the system of the country that you live in and things like that. Like being able to know what to take on, on top of all of those pressures, it's a very, very hard thing when you're trying to start from scratch and you want to make the best impression you possibly can. And so it's very hard to say no to anything when you really feel like you need to prove yourself, I guess. Well, you know what's really, I've, I've found through trial and error is that if you're honest with people about the fact that you can't take on new commitments and say, maybe try, you know contact me again in several months, they are so much more content than if you were to say yes and, and fall through on these commitments. So, Yeah, another thing that I found helpful is finding somebody to fill your spot immediately. And so if somebody asks you to do something and they say, you're a perfect fit for this, that tends to be what makes me feel pressure to say yes, because, you know, they're saying that they specifically want you to do it. I've gotten better at knowing other people in the industry that have the exact same skill set as me. Um, And it doesn't matter whether they're super experienced or not. It's just that if I know that they're a good fit, I can say no, but, and then Mm. give them somebody else. And I've only really started doing that in the last year um, and it's been so much better. And, you know, sometimes that that other person will say no, but sometimes they'll be super grateful for the opportunity. Um, And again, like I have really high standards. And so the person that I'm recommending is is genuinely a good fit. Um, And so that's been very helpful for me to feel like I still helped that person, even if I didn't end up doing the original thing they asked me to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting that it like, you know, the beginning of your career, there's kind of a dearth of opportunities where like if anyone ever, you know, sends you an email and gives you a, an opportunity, you're so excited to jump on it. But then like there's there's a point in all careers, and this goes kind of kind of to what uh, K-Ball was saying in the chat, like there's a point where you're going to get an abundance of opportunities um, more than you can handle. And the transition is sort of can sneak up on you where it's like, you know, when you're a teenager and someone gives you, you know, sends you a, an email about, you know, being part of like a, an interesting summer camp or something, you might obsess about it for a month because it's such a cool opportunity. But then when you're, you know, at this point in your career, you know, and you have, I don't know, opportunities to go to conferences or to, be, you know, be a part of this side project or that side project, it's just not humanly possible to do it all. No. And I think, um, you know, I, I want people to walk away with the, the I don't know, the impression that we're not saying don't take things that scare you right like absolutely go for those but don't just say yes to to all these things because you feel obliged to or uh, or whatnot like just make sure that you don't overwhelm yourself uh and i think it can quickly spiral out of control if you're not uh, intentional about that 
Yeah, my latest burnout has definitely been around that. Um, and I'm totally happy to share the story of that too, just because it came from more of a place of excitement than, I guess, stress. Um, because there are so many different aspects of, of what actually leads to burnout. And for me, it was when um, I joined Microsoft and I was joining to be in a position where, you know, I'm speaking to the dev community, but I'm also looking very... Um, closely at a lot of products in Azure, which is Microsoft's cloud services, and trying to find the bugs and the, the rough edges and the experiences that could be better and, and working to kind of smooth those out um, with product teams. And so when I first started, like when somebody gives you a bunch of cloud credits and gives you something like Azure or, you know, AWS or GCP or wherever you're actually looking at, you're looking at all of these tools that are now literally kind of your playground and I actually stopped sleeping properly for two weeks when I first started the job because I was that excited <laughs> about the potential of what I was able to do. I would just go down at night and my head would just be spinning with ideas. You know, I moved all of my open source projects, um, you know, which were sitting in places such as AWS and DigitalOcean. I just moved all of it across to Azure. I tried to sort of implement different architectural strategies and refactor them at the same time just to see, you know, what the, what the platform was capable of, but also, you know, what is the one-to-one -one comparison of all of these different services, just so I know, you know, where there might be feature gaps or where I know that Azure might actually do things better, for example. And so I just had this flurry of activity where I was just churning out, you know, project after project. I was creating talk after talk so that I could actually help people understand, you know, what are good architectures, what are good best practices and, th and things like that. And the thing is that I thought that I was having the best time ever and I was, but I think that after a year of just going super hard, um, I didn't realize that I was at a risk of burnout mostly because of that enthusiasm. And so the, the way that I knew that I was burnt out was I think that I just had a lull of activity for a month where I was about to change into a different team at Microsoft. And so things were winding down. And for me, the biggest danger is when you are not actually stopping. So you're just running and running and running and running and running. And as soon as you stop, that's when you fall apart. And that's mm. literally what happened to me. Um, and so once I'd, I'd had all of this value at work, I looked back and because of, I guess, um, I guess because of some traditional politics at Microsoft, even though I had accomplished a lot in that year, I wasn't really any closer to making an impact when it came to being recognized or, or being able to um, improve my networking um, situation. And so I just kind of all of a sudden felt this huge sense of apathy because I had run on the treadmill and, and gotten a lot of enjoyment out of it. But then all of a sudden my brain was like, you're not doing any of this anymore. And it, it was the most baffling, but also panic stricken time for me because I was starting on a new team. And I thought, how did I just all of a sudden go from kind of doing what I thought was impactful work to literally sitting and alt tabbing between programs and not doing anything. Um, mm. And it was quite terrifying for me. I didn't know that burnout could be caused by enthusiasm. I never thought about it like that too, but it's really true. I mean, what is it? It's caused by multiple things, one of which is stress, but when you're so enthusiastic about something, you want to work on it 24-7, and that can also be you know, a pitfall. I think that's something that people don't recognize at first. They, they think, I'm fine because I'm really enjoying it, um, and 
I'd never run into that type of burnout before. It had always been like the very typical sort of, you know, the Mayo Clinic definition that I talked about earlier about a lack of control at work or office politics or not being supported in a role. Um, and I was not prepared for that. And I think that's what scared me was there was no way for me to see the signs until all of a sudden I was looking at the symptoms in the face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um. Sorry for us. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that's very similar to how I think a lot of open source authors experience burnout. At least, at least that was my experience. This sort of enthusiasm at people, you know, using your, it, you know, it, it sort of starts as enthusiasm because somebody bothered to pay attention to this thing that you released into the world. And, you know, then it grows as people recognize your work. Uh, but then there's some point in, in any successful open source project where you get this sort of transition, I think, uh, at least like, like I said, that was my experience where you suddenly are like something happens and then you start to look at it differently and you start to see it as, as a source of obligation or you get feelings of guilt around, am I doing enough? Am I being a good maintainer? And so on and so forth. So yeah, I totally resonate with the idea that you can be really enjoying something and putting your heart and soul into it. And, uh, and then at some point that still burns you out. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. And I think, um, my most recent burnout, I would say I struggled a lot with because in the U S like I knew what, what to do if I ever got into these places mentally, like I would, you know, hang out with friends or I would play the piano or whatnot or do something. Uh, when I moved to Germany, I had to sell everything. And so I, I didn't have a piano here. I don't have a car that I can drive. Um, friends were really hard for me to make. And so I'm in a foreign country where I'm not fluent in the language. I can't really get around. And all of a sudden, like, what am I supposed to do? And so that was really hard for me. I ended up buying a keyboard because I'm like, if playing piano is really the only release that I have, um, kind of, I need to alleviate it in some way. Um, but what I don't understand is why we don't discuss these things more publicly. I'm not sure why it's so shameful to kind of just talk about the fact that mentally, like I'm not in a good place right now. Um, we don't talk about it. And I really do try to speak publicly about these things because I feel like so many people suffer with it. And even I feel like just knowing others are, are going through this, um, especially people who are maybe more experienced in the industry, it, it helps you realize that you will come out the other side. Everyone goes through this and you'll be okay. But, you know, if someone, if my coworker says, hey, like, I'm sick today, like, I'm, you know, I have the flu, you don't question it. But when people are like, oh, you know, uh, I want to take a mental health day. In the U.S., it's almost like a like a stigma, right? I find in Europe it's mm -hmm. a lot better. In Europe, people are so great, at least in Germany, about saying take a mental health day if you are are not okay. Like it's seen as equal to a physical ailment. But in the U.S., the the cultures like work all the time, and and you know if you have a mental if you need a mental day, it's you're almost at a deficit. Yeah, totally. I'm I'm at the point in my career now where I realize that. It took me a while to realize this because I always sort of feel vulnerable in general. You know, you feel like you should never be, I guess you should always be learning. You should always be pushing. But I realized that I'm at a point in my career where I've been in this industry long enough to have bolstered a good reputation. And so wherever I work in different teams as well, I, I generally have good rapport with them. So if I'm in that position where I feel that I have priv privilege and leverage just due to my experience, I tend to be a little bit more open with people. And so in previous um, jobs, I have felt safe enough just because of like my own um, 
just because of the team dynamics and the fact that people respect me enough to be able to say, hi, I'm not coming in today um, or I'm going to be taking the next two days off um, because of some mental health and, you know, and then just have a little sort of um, reminder for people in that email as well. Like if you feel that you need to take uh, some similar time off, um, please feel welcome to as well, you know, and that has really helped in ways that I didn't think it would. I just thought people would read the email and say, Suze thinks she's being holier than thou and like, you know, mm. talking about mental health in the office. But I actually got a lot of private replies saying, hey, thanks so much for speaking up about this. Um, it makes me feel like even though I'm not comfortable saying something like you are, I feel that I can now take a sick day or whatever if I need to. Um, and so that's been really helpful to try to help others not get to the point that that I get to where I need to take a couple of days off, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think the question becomes like, what do you do if you feel like you're on the verge of burning out? Right. And uh, I think the first step is to kind of just take a step back and and look at all of the priorities that you have. I feel like me personally. And so I'm not trying to say this is how it works for everyone. But when I burn out, it's because I get overwhelmed by the amount of, of um, things that I have to do. And so the first step is to take a step back and say, all right, what 110% needs to get done? And then to prioritize tasks. Maybe pick two, maximum three big things to focus on and everything else can wait, right? You're not saying you're never going to get to it. You're saying this needs to be put off temporarily until I'm in a better mental state. Um, and I think that that's helped me. I've also turned off all notifications because there's nothing worse than being you know, constantly notified of things going on around you when all you need to do is focus on one task. So for me personally, um, by being more, um, by prioritizing and by, you know, working on my um, productivity skills, I think that helps me alleviate it. But I feel like once you're already in that downward spiral, it's a lot harder to get out of it. I think that wraps up the segment really nicely, actually. Thanks, Emma. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams with products like Droplets, Spaces, Kubernetes, Load Balancers, Block Storage, and pre-built one-click apps. You can deploy, manage, and scale cloud applications faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Whether you're running one virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean makes managing your infrastructure way too easy. Head to do.co slash changelog again do.co slash changelog. So for us, you mentioned open source a little bit uh, in our previous discussions. Do you have any stories to tell about just burning out on open source in general or any stories that you know of out there, um, you know, in the community that you can share? Yeah, sure. I think with my experience with burnout in open source was it was sort of like I was saying before where it came sort of all of a sudden. Um, I, I started um, WebTorrent. That was my first open source project. Uh, and for many months, it was just hard to get anyone to, to notice or care about it. And so, uh, you know, at the beginning, 
whenever someone opened an issue, it was like, oh my God, yes, somebody cares about what I'm doing. This is so cool. Yeah, of course I'll like fix the bug and we'll, you know, we'll debug it together. And I'll just, you know, I would pour in, you know, days sometimes to fix a bug for somebody because, uh, you know, it was just so great to have people care about your work, you know? And, um, and then, you know, as a, a pro- if your project goes well, then it's this, it's this great thing where, you know, more people start to use it and you start to get more uh, contributors, pull requests, issues. Um, and, you know, that's super exciting and thrilling and exhilarating. And it, it reminded me a little bit of, Suze, what you were saying about at Microsoft, where you just, you know, you go to sleep and your mind is buzzing with ideas about your, what you want to work on next. Um, and, you know, this is all reinforced by the sort of social, um, uh, I don't know, validation that you get from uh, people on social media and people inviting you to speak at conferences about your project. And um, it's just this great whirlwind that can happen to you. Um, and uh, and then there's just a point where, I don't know, some it's sort of sad, but there's like a point where some point the magic is lost and it's hard to sort of mm-hmm. say why that happens. Um, for me, I think... Um, well, before I before I go into that, I guess I just want to emphasize that it's it might sound to listeners like we're all complaining about our, our <laughs> you know, great problems that we have. Um, I want to I want to point out like I think open source is great, and I'm definitely you know super happy that I did it. I have friends all over the world um, now. I, you know I've I've been to so many countries. Uh, my software is used you know by millions of people, and I met all these great people and worked on WebTorrent with them, and I became a better developer. Uh, you know I I hadn't pro- ever done you know proper you know, node development where, you know, you modularize things and you, you know, you learn how to write a readme and documentation and you figure out how to properly do pull requests, all this stuff. Like I became such a better developer. I'm so glad I went through this experience. I'm not, you know, you know, um, I'm not trying to, you know, uh, gloss over the positive, the positive parts of, of this, um, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, so I don't want to sound like I'm ungrateful or anything, but, uh, despite that fact, there does come a point, at least for me, there came a point where there were just so many issues coming in. Um, and I, I got this feeling of hopelessness that no matter how much I worked, I would never be able to make the software perfect enough that the issues would stop. And I think that is just not a good feeling to have. And, um, you know, it's interesting, actually, uh, sort of a side note about the different types of open source packages that exist, there's there's a type of package that can actually be done, like actually at some point be completely finished. Mm. Um, if its scope mm-hmm. is, is small enough that, you know, you can you can easily see someone's opening an issue asking for something, you can say, you know, I'm sorry, this is, this is completely out of scope. And it's very quick to sort of um, say no to features. Uh, the API doesn't need to evolve. It doesn't need to follow trends. It doesn't, there's no, um, you know, it's just, it's either the function does the thing it's supposed to do or it doesn't. And that's like very, it's very clear. And those packages aren't that hard to maintain. But then there's this other type, which is more um, amorphous. It t- typically, it's the kind of high level thing that users first interact with. So it's like, you know, the high, le- like a, like a web torrent or a, or a standard JS or a, um, uh, something with a bigger API surface uh, or where, where it needs constant work in order to follow the evolving browser standards or, um, you know, it just needs new features because it's it's clearly an incomplete thing in its current state, right? And those are the ones that just never, it seem like, seems like they can never be finished. Um, and so, yeah, I just had this feeling that I was getting, you know, constant uh, issues. And a lot of them were t- oftentimes these sort of esoteric 
bugs on you know random versions of Linux, like you know uh, you know I use like Arch Linux compiled from source with this extension, my your software is broken, <laughs> and it's like you know. Mm-hmm. At first, you're like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll fix this for you. You're a user. I really want to make my software work for you. Um, but, it, you know, I got into a, a mode where I was fixing these bugs constantly for all of these sort of nameless people. And I had very little to show for it. After, you know, after a month of working, I could work super hard. And then I could, you know, I, the software looks exactly the same for most people. But, you know, apparently it now it works on these mm-hmm. random versions of Linux or something. And so there's this sort of feeling of futility that I was never, I felt like I was never going to be able to fix all the bugs. And that I would be obligated to continue working on this project until the day that I die, um, and <laughs> you know, uh, and I was then I started to question, you know, why am I obligated to work for free for all these random people? A lot of them who have full time, you know, jobs that are actually paying them, while I'm just like a, a kid who's like 24 or whatever I was at the time with no job, and I'm working for free, and I'm doing this out of passion, and like, why, why am I sitting here and you know fixing bugs for these people who who I don't know, like should be fixing them themselves, you know, or should be sending pull requests or, or yeah, I don't know. So I, I, yeah, it's sort of this feeling of sort of the, the tables had turned a little bit and I was looking at it from a new perspective. Um, that was sort of the moment when it changed. Absolutely. I think that's been my biggest ultimate fear in open source, especially when like I look at, I look up to you a lot in open source for us and I, I look at, I'm like, Wow, he's really good at finding the things that matter and also releasing things that are trying to be one step ahead of everything else, right? It's like, this is the future, or this is something we should be doing, or this is a huge feature gap in like peer-to-peer or something like that. And I look up to you so much, but I'm also simultaneously terrified of having the same quote-unquote success because it can lead to things like this. Um, And I was thinking about this recently. I received a pull request yesterday, and it was just so wholesome that I wanted to cry. And then I realized, (laughs) I realized like why this hasn't happened to me yet in open source. And like one of my tweets yesterday was basically my good experience is due to a number of things, but a lot of it has to do with making nice things in the corner that only a handful of people care about. Mm, And so for me, for me, like I'm solving like edge case problems or I'm, or I'm like exploring in a space where enough people care about it that I feel like I'm not just, you know, developing stuff in a vacuum, but at the same time, the, 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 I think the scariest motivator that I've ever had in open source is that Arduino, the company itself uses one of my packages. And like, for me, I would not want to be any more successful than that because that's already terrifying for me. And obviously the extrinsic motivation for me to keep that stable and up to date and constantly be fixing issues, it's just one repo for me. And because it's it's hardware, it's like low level hardware stuff, that stuff just doesn't really change. It's usually just a panic if an operating system changes or if a browser all of a sudden puts an extra permission in place. That tends to be the extent of it. And I think that uh, I just really value hearing that this this story from you for us because it sounds like it's just as scary as I think it would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I felt at times like I, maybe I should just stop publishing new work uh, because every time I release a new package, it makes the burden worse because it's this sort of collective thing where, you know, every new package causes a new, in, you know, causes its own influx of, uh, or it's sort of an obligation that it adds to the list of obligations. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, I think finding these pa- packages, which don't change, you know, whether it's hardware or whether it's a simple thing is, is really, um, it really helps not having ones that are constantly 
demanding attention and work. Um, and you know, it's it's important too that you are solving your own problems. Um, you know, it, it, there's nothing um, nice about well, yeah. I, I I think it really it really is hard to to work on uh, on a package when you're not actually using it yourself anymore, which sometimes happens. And so, you know, then that makes that feeling of like these bugs that are coming in really have nothing to do with with my interests anymore, or or, or they don't have anything. They're not solving use cases that I have. Um, and one thing that, that actually happened to me was I uh, I would start packages as open source by default because the thought was, you know, well, it's going to be open source anyway, so why would I start the repo as a private repo? I'll just make a repo on GitHub and then I'll just start to commit code to it. And then one thing that would happen is you know, I, I would push. I would push up some bare bones functionality. You know, a version one of a package, and then I would. You know, I was in the middle of solving some problem, and that's why I, I made this package because I found some bit of functionality in the project that made sense to be a separate package. So I just sort of said, okay, I'll quickly go make a package and publish it. You know, write up the README, and then great, and then I'll come back and finish what I was doing. But uh, oftentimes, I would start to get like issues or pull requests within like you know the first day. Um, and I would, I, and it was, it was like that's great. You know, people are looking at my GitHub. That's that's awesome. But then I would be like, oh my gosh, I, I have to support this use case. They're right, you know, or oh, they they did find a valid bug. I didn't think of that. Um, but the thing is, I would have, I wouldn't have ran into those issues. I would, it solved my problem perfectly. And so then suddenly I'm now, you know, fixing edge cases for 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 other people and adding features to support use cases that I don't even have. And so it actually took me away from what I was in the middle of doing. So then I started feeling like maybe I should just stop doing this. Um, or maybe, I don't know, maybe I should ignore it, which is what I ended up doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And then, and then the other thing about all this is just that it, it does feel a little bit like you're, um, you're a startup founder almost, but you have none mm. of the upside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, well, some, you have some, I guess you have some, you have some, but it's not, it's like, you don't really, you're sort of, you're forced to be this jack of all trades. Like you have to do everything. You have to be the developer. Mm -hmm. You have to do the testing. So you're doing QA. You have to design a logo sometimes for the project. So you're doing graphic design. Then you have to, you know, write all the copies that explains why this package is worth your time. So you're doing marketing. Then you tweet about it and you interact with people on social media. So you're a social media manager. <laughs> then you, you have to deal with, uh, you know, angry people or people who are who are posting issues and they're you know they're frustrated so you're doing customer service right <laughs> then you're doing pr and when you're you know sort of sometimes things happen and you have to sort of uh, deal with a little bit of politics or or sort of a controversial decision so you're really doing pr um and then yeah you have to juggle all this so you're basically a founder <laughs> you're a founder of a startup yeah. but you have you have but you but, but you but you give away everything you do for free. <laughs> yeah, that's what I had to do with my project when I started it was I think the biggest thing that helped with with me not burning out was delegating and finding people that I trust to take over pieces of it because I had I had the impression that I was just going to develop this whole thing myself and it was like no, if you want this to succeed, you've got to be the project manager and I also am the designer, which is hard cuz that's I'm not a designer um like by trade. Um, so like finding developers that I could trust, uh, was possibly the biggest, but that's hard. You don't want to like give your baby away, you know? Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. like I think to what you said as well, like once you start building things that, that people are looking at is when it's like your, oh crap moment, like, oh crap, I actually need to pay attention to not screwing this up now. And then it becomes a little bit harder. 
Yeah, they feel like customers, you know, these people who are using your work and you don't want to break their builds, you don't want to, you know, cause them to have problems. So you feel you feel an obligation or or a yeah, and it's, it turns it can turn into a sense of guilt if you don't feel like you're doing your job as well as you as you could. You know, if mm-hmm. if if you're letting the issues sit there for a while. Um, so yeah, finding people is a great idea. I think I did an okay job at doing that, but uh, I I think um, <laughs> maybe this is something specific to the peer to peer space. But when you're dealing with people who love you know the idea of um, you know like torrents and you know decentralization. It's very hard to get structure. <laughs> people don't want structure or hierarchy or, you know, and I don't want to be able, I don't want to, I, I was uncomfortable with the idea of delegating, honestly, because I'm like, these people aren't, aren't they're not working for me. You know, they're, they're not my subordinates or whatever. I, I'm not a manager. Like, I can't tell them mm-hmm. to do things. So, or, you know, even ask them, I felt bad asking because it's like, what if they're busy or what if they, I don't want to put pressure on them. So um, that lo- caused a sort of sense of, um, uh, yeah, just a bit of structural structurelessness that would have um, would have been better if, if if we could find another way to sort of, uh, you know, if I had talked to people more to figure out what their interest in the project was or how much time they had and done a little bit more of that sort of interaction with with people, I think I could have maybe figured out um, a way to way to work with people better. Um, maybe like holding meetings once a week or once a month to sort of talk about what everyone's you know plans were and what parts of the project they they intended to work on. Um, that might have helped ease the burden a little bit, but um, yeah, I didn't do a very good job of any of those things. So uh, I think that probably made it a little bit worse and caused a little bit of feeling of loneliness too. So, mm-hmm. uh, Jared mentioned before that you know his question was: Is there a difference between burnout and flameout, where people just never come back? And we've definitely seen that both, but like in the industry, both from a perspective of I'm a public figure who got a lot of attention for good work that I did in the field, and also just people who worked several tech jobs, um, you know, behind closed doors and just completely burnt out or flamed out as a result of just having a very unfortunate series of, you know, offices they worked in where, where they were pushed to that point. Is that something that you've and you don't have to answer this question if you're not comfortable, but is that something that any of you have thought about? You know, it, has it ever been enough to make you not want to to basically disappear? Oh, yeah. You know, and, and not <laughs> and withdraw from the community or to withdraw from having a tech job in general? Yes. Yeah, there was, I remember there was a day like several months back where I literally just sat on my floor in my closet and cried. I did not think I could do this anymore. I... I was really honestly debating like what I could do with my life because I, I just couldn't be in the tech industry or like the tech Twitter community or whatnot anymore. It was really hard. Uh, and I think I got lucky because I, I reignited my passion for those things. And I wish that I had a finite answer that would help someone else in that position. But I can easily see why people flame out in a sense. Like this is a very volatile industry in so many ways. And if you're really not careful, um, yeah, it can definitely flame you out. <laughs> yeah. There's been examples of people in the industry um, who've sort of hit the delete button on all their work because they couldn't take it anymore. Um, <laughs> I I would say I haven't ever felt that, um, I guess, that hopeless about things. Uh, it's, But it it is something that I kind of understand why somebody would do that, you know. Um, Especially because in programming, you um, you often, I mean, software rots over time. So there is this feeling of like, well, what is all this going to come to in the end? You know, my, my stuff's going to be replaced by other people's stuff. And does all this work amount to anything? Um, the industry moves so fast. 
Um, so when when people sort of just want to just you know delete themselves off the internet, I kind of uh, I kind of understand where that uh, that feeling comes from. Yeah, the example that was mentioned before was why the lucky stiff. You know who who it was it was such a huge deal when they successfully basically deleted themselves off the internet. Um, but that was such a beloved figure in the Ruby community just because of their approaches to make it more accessible, um, just the delight, delightful and charming projects that they created too. And I think that that opened up a lot of vulnerability for other people to discuss, you know, why it might have happened and any sort of parallel feelings other people had had around wanting to do that as well. I think, you know, part of, part of this uh, this intensifying of burnout is due to the way that open source has actually changed over the years too. Like uh, there was a time when open source was, you know, you would go to a website, read about it, read about the the, the project and then send emails to a mailing list. uh, And you had to figure out the specific procedures for that project. And every project was different. And then to contribute, you know, you had to send, you know, follow some, again, some specific process for that project and usually email a patch to the mailing list. And it was this much slower process and there was a m- bunch more barriers to, to entry for people to, to contribute and to get started, which, you know, obviously there's downsides to that, uh, that approach. But, but the, the GitHub approach has made it so that, you know, any developer, because every developer has a GitHub account, any developer can, can now open up these issues and can uh, and can sort of add, basically anyone on the internet can add uh, tasks to your to-do list for you without, they can just literally just pop tasks onto your to-do list and, you know, you don't even have to know who they are. And so this change has made it sort of a lot, um, uh, a lot more stressful and a lot more a lot more pressure being put on the maintainers. Um, and there's usually still a similar number of maintainers as the old days, you know, it's just a, usually... For some projects, it's just a few people. Um, but now, suddenly, right, the entire, dev- all the developers in the world can um, can add these tasks to to the to the workload of the maintainers, and so it's really changed a lot and made made the problem worse. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Datadog. Get a user's eye view of your front-end services with Datadog Synthetics. Automatically test your application endpoints with simulated traffic from global locations, allowing your teams and yourself to proactively identify and improve issues before they affect your users. Plus, you can build multi-step browser tests by simply interacting with your application. Datadog will record your actions and automatically execute the tests, intelligently adapting to changes in your UI along the way. Build your first test today with a free trial of Datadog Synthetics and get a free t-shirt. Yes, the awesome Datadog t-shirt you've seen out there. Head to datadog.com slash jsparty to start your free trial. Again, datadog.com slash jsparty. So I don't want this whole episode to be doom and gloom. Um, so I want to cover um, the topic of like how to actually avoid burnout in the first place, but also, you know, via that like tips for managing burnout if and when it happens, and maybe how to spot burnout when it's happening. Um, so coming back to the workplace, Emma, do you have any insights about just 
how you ended up being able to pull yourself out or things that you would have done differently next time, you know, if you feel like Mm -hmm. you might be approaching burnout? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I I did for myself was um, confide in in my coworkers uh, who are also very great friends because as soon as you admit to people that, you know, you're not in the best mental place, um, that helps me personally alleviate a lot of these feelings. And and at that point I kind of have an ally in in this situation who encourages me to take time for myself. Like if, if I don't talk to someone, I kind of just push through it or attempt to push through. And at that point it just, you know, becomes so much worse. Um, so I think uh, confiding in someone at work, um, that you trust is, is a big one. Uh, and additionally, like they'll also probably offer to help you in, in some way if possible. Like I don't like to ask for help on things because I, I like to try to do everything myself. <laughs> and so um, I think extending that olive branch is really helpful. Uh, and, and spending time off of screens is a big one too because um, we work on computers all day, every day, and I spend a crap ton of time on my phone. Um, at this point, it's becoming a second job. Um, so I think spending time off of devices, getting outside is, is a big one, um, and finding hobbies that are completely outside of the wheelhouse of, of what you do day to day at your workplace. Uh, I think that was help. They're all really good points. Yeah. And I think, uh, so, someone mentioned earlier that social media can feel like a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure. Um, if mm. you're, you know, thinking about conferences or, or, uh, working on, you know, side projects and stuff like that. One thing that's helped me with, with, uh, social media is to use it as a write only medium. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I I actually just don't read the timeline. I just uh, I use this app called Buffer to just write my, write a tweet whenever I think of something that I want to say or you know link to a project or something. I'll just put it in Buffer and then it will just go out at some point in the future <laughs> automatically. And uh, I just don't have to ever like open up the Twitter app. So if if that's uh, if, that, if social media overload or the stress from that is causing problems, that, that's an approach that's worked for me. Yeah, that's definitely been something that I was surprised by recently. Like, I just, I love computers and I love tech. And I just, I just can't stop thinking about that stuff a lot of the time. And I took a a vacation recently because I saw myself approaching burnout. And so I was super proud of myself for kind of seeing that. And, and so I took some Mm. time off, but I went to Japan, which is in a totally different time zone to a lot of the people that I see in my Twitter, um, I guess, timeline. A lot of the time. So, you know, when I when I lived in Australia, I followed a lot of Australians because they were tweeting during my time zone, right? And then when I, when I moved to America, my time zone just kind of like dropped out, you know, during the, the daylight hours when I was reading social media. And so I started following Americans or people just in the same time zone. So people from South America, people from North America, um, and and also just like parts of Europe. And so when I went to Japan, all of a sudden, there just wasn't a lot of um, super active conversation from um, the tech community because it was mostly smaller tech communities that were having those conversations. And so I took that opportunity to just be like, well, I feel out of the loop. I really love reading tweets about tech, but at the same time, like maybe I should just make my Twitter sort of write only. And so during that that entire like few weeks that I was in Japan, I was like, I'm just going to tweet really happy photos of my vacation without context at all. And, and not in a way where I'm trying to like rub it in or show off to people, but just saying, this is what I'm currently seeing right now. Um, and this, this, 
these are the nice places that I have been enjoying. And this is the peace that I have found in this place just by taking some time off. And then just kind of didn't really engage with everybody. And every time I went to write a tweet that I thought was going to get a lot of responses, I just deleted it. And so I have all of these sort of weird drafts where I would start tweeting something and just be like, it's not worth it to me right now. And even though I don't feel that I have a problem with social media, that still actually helped me a lot to just be like, you don't always have to be thinking about computers, Suze. Like you can just take a picture of a nice garden you saw in Japan instead, you know? Mm -hmm. Nice. I like that a lot. Someone mentioned in the chat that, um, a good way to help burnout at work actually could be pursuing open source, which I know sounds super counterintuitive given that we both just talked about, we, we talked about both topics of burnout in open source and burnout in the workplace. But I would say that anecdotally, I've had a good experience with that as well, where I was feeling super out of control at work. I wasn't feeling supported. I wasn't engaged with the work we were doing because I didn't agree um, that we where I didn't agree with the direction that the technical architecture was going in, but I didn't have the, I guess, agency and, and power to, to change that. And so my first foray into open source came about because I wanted to just code on something that mattered to me, that was solving a problem for me, and that was also teaching me something new. Um, and so I found that enormously helpful. And I think that that's probably why... I've had a good experience with open source because I still continue to work on niche stuff that nobody else cares about, um, which, which helps me out a lot. So those projects are the best, the ones where it's just like exploring something new and something, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of out there and you don't know if it's going to work and you feel like you're on the frontier of, of new things and totally, yeah, totally like such a release. I love it. Mm-hmm. There's a book that I am slowly working through because it's incredibly dense and it's called POC or GTFO. And it's about the, I guess, the reverse engineering and also like the hacking community sharing stories about how they've, you know, um, exploited something um, or even just came up with a neat way to do something with computers. And one of the chapters in the book was about building your own bird feeder. And it's stuck with me ever since where a lot of people will come up to you and they're like, what are you working on? And you'll tell them about your little pet project and they're like, oh, well, that's been done before. Or, oh, you could just use this thing to do it. Or, you know, why do you think that that's actually like interesting? And the the response in that chapter is, well, just like, just leave me alone. I'm building my own bird feeder. Like I'm doing it for the <laughs> sake of doing it. And it doesn't have to be groundbreaking and it doesn't have to be, you know, like super smart. It can be silly and not lead to anything, but it, it just keeps my faith in... Um, you know, everything else that I'm doing around tech because I have this little piece of joy, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do we have any more tips for things? <laughs> I apologize. I'm melting um, here. There's no air conditioning, so I'm slowly deteriorating. No, it's totally okay. Can, can we share any tips on how to maybe spot burnout before it happens? Mm. I think one of the things is um, finding yourself, if you're a normally, you know, um, positive person, I notice that I become cynical when it comes to most everything, if, I, if I'm on the verge. That and having no motivation to do anything, including the, the hobbies that I love that are irrelevant to my day job. That's really interesting. The cynicism is a good indicator, I think. I think mm-hmm. trying to, like in, in in life in general, actually, it's always a struggle to not become cynical. I think like with age, uh, everybody becomes more cynical. But uh, but uh, 
but like that's that's always the that's to me at least I try to I try to not let that happen and but if, if you see that if, if you notice that happening in yourself that's really that's totally like a really good early warning sign I think yeah the Mayo Clinic mentions um, some of the questions that you might want to ask yourself and one of them is very topical to that which is have you become irritable or impatient with co-workers customers or clients <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that it's very true yeah I think for me, the biggest sign that I can spot now is either waking up with some anxiety about starting my day. That tends to be a, a very early warning sign for me that I got really good at ignoring because it felt like it was noise and there wasn't a lot of signal around that. Um, and the other thing is just a sudden drop in productivity. Like when, if you imagine that your colleagues from the outside would just be like, Suze is just out there kicking butt and then all of a sudden she's not. Um, and I think that for me, the sudden drop in productivity is the sign that it's too late, but maybe waking up with a little bit of anxiety or um, just feeling a bit lethargic about the idea of starting your workday, that to me should be the early signs that I'm looking for before the really big ramifications happen. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. I think it's just important to notice like when you're, when you're normal – personality or your behaviors are starting to deviate from from well okay so when your behavior starts to to um diverge from your normal you know personality it's a big one yeah and i think that having enough people close to you in your life and it doesn't have to be colleagues because not everyone works in a workplace where they're privileged enough or or lucky enough to have colleagues that that look out for each other mm-hmm. i think that making sure that you're always checking in with people in your life um, who can personally support you, they tend to pick up on those signs before you do as well. And so making sure that you surround yourself with people who are willing to sort of put themselves out there and say, hey, I've just noticed that you've been talking about your job differently recently, or hey, I've just noticed that um, you seem to be, you seem to look stressed out when you're sitting on GitHub, you know, late at night and scrolling through the issues and things like that. Um, For me, I'm very stubborn and I'm not always willing to, I, I'll get defensive sometimes if someone brings those things up. I'm like, no, I'm fine. Um, but I think mm-hmm. it's really good to ensure that that the people in your life are aware of what your warning signs are too, because they tend to spot them well before you do. Yeah, that's true. That's hard for people, especially like I don't like to be vulnerable with people. So I think um, you know, always you always need one or two good people on your side. So a, a couple of things that I've read online about also addressing the symptoms of burnout and trying to come out of burnout, I think I think the biggest struggle that I have with, with some of this advice is that not, not everybody can, like, do the things, um, you know what I mean, to, to try and pull out. And so it's really about trying to analyze your current situation and trying to do the th- do the things that are within your control to do it. And so, you know, if you have the opportunity to switch to another job, if you think that it's the job that's causing it and you don't have any resolution, then that should be something that that you should feel you can do. If you can't do that, um, you know, it could be something such as if you're if you're able to do some light exercise or um, do some meditation or something like that, if, if you have the, the personal time to be able to invest in that, that could be the right thing for you. Um, things such as seeking support from co-workers or friends, that's something that like most people should feel that they can actually do. Um, and then things like sleep. Sleep, you know, especially if you're a new parent, can be really difficult. Um, but I found that sleep and getting enough sleep and getting good quality sleep for me has been 
always been the biggest influence on my well-being in general and how how effectively I can pull out a burnout as well. Mm-hmm. Sorry, there's a conversation going on in the chat because we're just quickly discussing the culture differences in the U.S. and how, in general, like, you get penalized for saying, like, anything other than good if someone asks you how you're doing. And, and my take on this, especially now living in Europe, is, like, that's just such a passive greeting. It's not even, like, a genuine question anymore. It's, like... Yeah, people in the U.S. actually don't care about your problems, which is ironic because, like, we tend to become best friends very quickly. But, like, best friends, you know, quote, unquote, right? It's like they genuinely don't care about you. And if you were to say, I'm not doing so hot, they'd probably be like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And that would be the end of it. Versus in Europe, you know, people are honest. And uh, it's very interesting culture-wise. I definitely ran into this when I moved to the States, Um People would ask me about my weekend and I would tell them and then there would be some stunned silence. And I'm like, but what what did I say? You know, I would say something like, oh, you know, I got really into this thing. And like, I realized that sometimes I will just go into some nerd rant. But even (laughs) if I said something simple, such as, you know, oh, I like went hiking at Red Rock for the first time. And it was super interesting and um, it was really pretty. And then I'll, tr- I'll, I'll be like digging through my phone to show a photo and I can tell they've already disengaged with the conversation. Yeah. And I, it was so, so confusing to me that even if I was sharing like upbeat news, I just didn't get that. Like if they ask, it doesn't necessarily mean they want to know. And yeah. that is still one of the most confusing concepts to me. I'm a very literal person. So if you ask <laughs> something, I assume that you actually want the honest answer to it. So, yeah, I, I think that that is a real struggle when it comes to trying to break through break through people's barriers in order to have these deep conversations about the fact that you're struggling to begin mm-hmm. with. Yeah, I don't know why it's such a taboo to talk about, honestly. I feel like the question, you know, how are you doing or how was your weekend is more like a heartbeat ping. It's like, uh, are you there? And then the answer is just supposed to be like, yes, you know, like I'm, I'm here. And then you can say what you really want to say after that. People don't really, yeah. people don't really want to hear when they ask that question for, for whatever reason. No, they don't. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. But I think, I think being positive is super important. I mean, that's, I think just in, in general in life, like not, um, I, I know this is, I mean, this is cliche and obvious, I guess, but um, I feel like that world is so negative in general and social media is so negative and people are always focusing on the way things that can be, be- can be better. And, um, and, you know, that's, uh, it's good. That's how things improve. But um, as an individual, I don't think it's healthy to be steeped in that. Um, and so whatever you can do to remove yourself from that and to put yourself into a more healthy environment and to do things, not, not looking at a computer, you know, outside in nature and to take a break and all these things that can remind you that the world is actually a beautiful place and it's amazing. And the sun is out, at least in California, the sun is usually out and it's a beautiful place to be. And there's all this, uh, great stuff you can do. And the world is, uh, is, I mean, I'm so glad I'm alive today and not, you know, hundreds or thousands of years in the past and things are great. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a book recommendation, if that would be helpful to anyone, too, on on just m- helping to manage, I guess, these feelings from day to day that I found really helpful. Um, and the book is called No Hard Feelings. And I don't know if any of the other panelists have seen or heard of it, but it is just such a beautifully illustrated and well thought out book 
um, and I would highly recommend it. I'm just looking up the author. What would you say the um, like overall messages from the book or the the, the, the thesis, I guess? Yeah, so the book is by um, Liz uh, Foslian and Molly Westuffy. So they wrote it together. Uh, it's called No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work. Um, and so pretty, pretty topical to today. I would say that the biggest takeaways are just they share the causes of the initial emotions that happen. Does that make sense? And so they help set up a bunch of mental models that stop you from sort of ending up in the pit of despair in the first place and being able to be much more mindful and spot patterns as they occur and, and apply different mental models to being able to handle that. Um, and for me, the, the, the thing that I like about the book too is that you don't have to read it all in order. You know, you can sort of dart around and just find things that you really relate to. Um, and that's definitely been the most helpful resource to me recently when thinking about, you know, politics in the workplace um, causing burnout or just um, the, your own expectations you have on yourself as well and then how you can sometimes project them on others. So um, that's definitely something, a, a book that I would recommend for people. Mm-hmm. Oh, it looks so cute. It's a, it's illustrated. Yeah, the illustrations are just beautiful. And you might have Aww. actually seen some of them posted on Twitter. Like they're very sort of... They're very shareable. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so cute. So yeah, do we have any other parting thoughts? I don't think so. I think I just, we should leave people with the, the thought that it's okay if you're feeling overwhelmed and there's no shame in, in, in taking mental health days and try to um, remediate the situation before you get too far down your spiral. For us? Oh, I was going to say, yeah, maybe one good piece of advice is to just make a change in your life in some dramatic way, if that's what it takes. Like if you feel like, I mean, it's silly to think that something will change if you keep doing the same thing. So um, being brave and, and um, you know, doing, doing what it takes to, doing something, even some like anything that's different can help. Like um, deciding you're not going to look at your issues for a month or, I don't know, quitting your job in an extreme case, you know, doing something, going somewhere else, doing something different. I would encourage people to not be afraid of making a big change like that if that's what it takes to yeah. to do it. And that's great advice. Um, I wanted to also thank you too for sharing your personal stories today. I know that they're usually very difficult to talk about and, you know, this is going out to a large audience too. But I th- I'm hoping that our anecdotes today will be very helpful to people to take away with them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. It's not easy to talk about this stuff, that's for sure. But it's important. <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully this wasn't too solemn for people. Like, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. We just have a podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash ChangeLog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at ChangeLog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. <laughs>